Welcome to the Menlo Midweek Podcast, where we are getting some extra time with the speaker from last Sunday's message to go a little deeper, get some extra thoughts about the message, and get a behind-the-scenes look at their teaching process. We're your hosts, Mark and Jess. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Menlo Midweek. Hey, everybody. What a fun conversation we just wrapped up. I just want to remind you to sign up for Run for Hope. You can hit the link down in the description now. Click pause and do that if you haven't signed up already and make sure you join our online dream team and I will run one mile for you. So let's do that now and then we'll get into our conversation. Welcome to the Menlo Midweek Podcast, everybody. My name is Mark. My name is Jessica. We have Phil with us again today. What's up, everybody? Just Phil now. Just, 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 just Phil. Phil. Who called me this? Somebody this weekend called me old Phil. Oh, no. No, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was Taylor Corton, and she called me. She was trying to say, like, that old Phil. But somebody was like, did you just call him old Phil? Wow. And, I, and I took it like to the extreme, of course. Yeah. And I was like, first Naturally. it was new Pastor Phil. Now it's mm. old Phil. So Already there. We got you there. are 80 days old. Which yeah, is yeah. that a sign of endearing, though? I feel like that's I think a, so. From yeah. Taylor, I yeah. mean, I don't think she's got a mean bone that's in her. That's so actually very accurate. Totally Maybe fine. Brett has a different story of Maybe. that. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he for another podcast. What'd you say? You said he no, I think she's saying that like Brett has other stories of oh. Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not mean that Brett is so mean. Oh my gosh. You heard it here, Brett. <laughs> Let's oh, see if he actually listens to the yes. podcast He's and says hear about something. It. Whether he listens to it or not, he's going to hear about it. <laughs> Brett, you're very nice. Uh, Brett's the best. I was literally meaning he might think that she's mean in some way. Yeah. But he would never admit that. No, he wouldn't. Because no. <laughs> he is nice. also very kind. Yeah. yeah. They're both too nice. Well, it was a big weekend for us. It was. We kicked yeah. off with Friday night at the new Saratoga launch. Woo. That was awesome. That was incredible, that was dude. What that team has done yeah. is uh, honestly like miraculous. Mm-hmm. If you'd been to that campus a week earlier, which I had, and then went on Friday night, and then it had some other things that had to get done before Sunday. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Absolutely I think incredible. what was telling was at the end of the night, when you guys had all the staff come up, Juice, who's the admin over there, wasn't even in the room because mm-hmm. she was already cleaning stuff up. Yep. That was what the whole night was like. Yeah, yeah, yeah they uh, they did they did an incredible job and had an amazing, amazing kickoff with some really fun stories. And um, you know, those were those were two campuses that I think both were sort of struggling to get their footing a little bit around scale and size on the other side of COVID and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we struggled to know how to invest in those two campuses. And uh, Mark, Josh, and I had a, co- a longer conversation about this. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to it. But to be able to see uh, some of that investment going to one location and then those folks so graciously uh, merging and believing for the best uh, for both communities together, uh, it has just been incredible. I mean, they were larger than both campuses combined would have been mm. on their very first weekend, which. Uh, bigger isn't always better, mm-hmm. but I think that there's a there's a size and scale of community that you want to feel like you're in a space that's made for the number of people that are in that space. You want to feel like the things that are there around hospitality and first impressions and all those things are built for the number of people that are coming on. And, you know, c- close to my heart is you want to make sure that when you feel like you're going to invite somebody in your life to be a part of it, 
you want them to walk into a place that mm-hmm. feels alive, that mm-hmm. people are expecting them and are yeah. excited to be. And so uh, I was jealous of them <laughs> this weekend. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm just in Menlo Park, just talking to them uh, through a camera. So uh, anyway, kudos to them. Amazing. Yeah. One thing that was really cool that I think is like really telling of Menlo Church in general is getting to go there that night and then mm-hmm. having been at Mountain View for so long and seeing Mountain View volunteers who Absolutely. helped like launch Saratoga and now they're sticking around to help launch this new campus. I just, I love that because yeah. that's what Menlo Church is about. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Yep. And we had some people online on Sunday morning. It was a little bit concerning from me on the back end because I can see how many people are watching. Spoiler mm. alert for those yeah. that, <laughs> that don't know that. And I was like, oh, we're a little bit light this weekend. Like, what's going on? And then at about maybe five or 10 minutes into the service, there was a big jump of people that came on. They're like, sorry, we were at the new Saratoga campus. Oh. We drove home and now we're joining online with you again wow. like normal. And I was like, wow, oh, this is awesome. That's, That's incredible. Great. Yeah, it was really fun. Way to go. I know. People are great sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> they way, are. Way to go. Yeah. Well, Phil, we are in our last word series and you kicked it off with a bit of a family news, Mm -hmm. family business style announcement. So Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to give a little bit more space to that now and then we can go ahead and jump into your message. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's there's seasons in ministry and life where uh, I I totally get it. I never want to like look back and reevaluate how decisions got made or how um, uh, things were communicated. Like, you know, it's, it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback. Uh, but I think that even though um, some of these uh, specific accounts of abuse from about 30 years ago surfaced at the beginning of the investigation a few years ago or in the midst of that investigation, and there was some response back and forth uh, as I was brought into that conversation from those survivors over these last few months. It felt uh, really, really apparent that there was healing that I hoped and still hope uh, can be at least in part uh, aided by Menlo Church. It's the absolute least we can do, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, I felt like the gift that those survivors being brave enough to say something and to keep saying it did is it allows us as a community uh, to learn and be held accountable to get better. And some of that was uh, the work that we had already identified through the Zero Abuse Project investigation a few years ago. And the team has done an amazing job implementing that stuff. You can find it uh, in the post on our website under leadership updates. You can go see the most recent update of those um, zero abuse recommendations. Uh, But also I think there's even just some new, what do we do from here conversations. And so um, we talked about that we're making funding available for survivors of abuse at Menlo Mm -hmm. to be able to make sure that the ongoing care that they need, the counseling that they need, uh, that we can help cover those costs, uh, as well as if there are future allegations. Um, and the really sad reality is that a church of 150 years, mm-hmm. we would by, be naive to not um, mm-hmm. recognize that that's probably the case. And uh, we want to be as open and honest about that as we can be and deliver care and understand that even though we weren't there and God forbid it happens again, uh, we are still standing on the shoulders of the men and women who led Mm -hmm. to the best and to the worst uh, for all of those years. And so uh, we've done that and then provided that path 
hopefully for folks um, to be able to email. It's just menlo at zeroabuseproject.org. Mm. Uh, if you or someone you know has been a survivor of abuse at Menlo and, and just needs help. And, and candidly, I would say if you have experienced uh, abuse at any church uh, and you want some path to help, we would love to be able mm. to help figure that out for you. Uh, and then I think one of the things that uh, Victor from Zero Abuse Project, who is, um, I mean, just a gift, like a gift to the church. He is um, incredible. The most like very calming voice, but mm. pretty intense. Um, and I just, I, I'm, I was like, dude, I don't know how you get up every day, like yeah. what he does mm -hmm. on the regular. And I think what his hope for Menlo is and what my hope is as well, is that even though we have um, some of these really difficult um, elements of our past from 30 years ago, and, and certainly um, I'm sure that there's more, uh, I think that there's an opportunity for us moving forward to not just get better than kind of where we are today, uh, but what we've talked about is putting together a team of HR professionals and folks uh, from within leadership of Menlo to identify what are our options moving forward, particularly on a go forward basis to, to say, hey, could we put something in our employment contracts? Because this is a little inside baseball, but uh, if someone leaves, I mean, we can report them to the authorities, but if they uh, get a, if they go to another job and we are called as a reference in California, we're not allowed to answer any questions. The only questions we can answer are start date and end date. And so if they violated child safety policies, uh, we'd really love to figure out what our options are to potentially include in an employment contract uh, so that we can, when that incident happens, again, God forbid, uh, but we would be able to say that person was terminated from our staff uh, for violation of child safety. So, and I'm sure somebody's like, yeah, but wouldn't that mean that somebody maybe wouldn't want to be on your staff if that was in play? And I would say, we probably don't want them on our staff. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think the opportunity then to, uh, whether that's other churches in the Bay Area or hopefully maybe even a bigger movement than that, if we can do some of that work uh, and then create a context where other churches jump onto it, could we create a space where maybe abusers can't find jobs in ministry with kids? That would be a huge win. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, a one way, one small way uh, to honor mm -hmm. the survivors in this. So, And that's not just a win for the church, hopefully as what the church should be doing is leading in the communities around them. This should extend past the walls of a church person that has acted maliciously and goes to another church. Like this should be something that happens at every organization all throughout what, California. Without a doubt. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is, I mean, when we talk about how we care for kids and students, uh, there is just not, <laughs> there's nobody that's going to go, you know what? We should really loosen that stuff up. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yes. yeah, obviously, we want, and, and the really sad reality is uh, it does not take very long to look into uh, church world to see that abusers, uh, kind of wolves in sheep's clothing, if you will, have found ways to hide themselves mm -hmm. inside of organizations that have more lenient policies. Uh, that's on purpose. That's by design. And so I would say if you're a volunteer at Menlo and you've had to do a couple background checks and you've had to jump through hoops and you've had to do mandated reporting training and all that, 
I would say thank you um, because mm -hmm. part of us drawing this big circle around the next generation and making sure that our spaces for kids and students are the safest in the communities that we serve is because you're willing to do that. Uh, and if you trust us with your kids and students, thank you. And please know that uh, we take this more seriously than any church I have ever been to. Uh, and this has always been a conversation at every church I've always been to, ever been to, but uh, Menlo has uh, really, really, really taken some fantastic steps mm -hmm. in the last few years. And uh, I hope I hope what you heard this weekend is we're not done taking them. Mm. Yes. And so the next test that you gave was to join us all collectively as we grieve and pray. And again, if you're hearing this for the first time or you need more space to do that or would like to process, you could text our team. I'd love to be that person for you to help you walk through this. Uh, you also said, hold us accountable. And I think everything that you've said so far, I, I heard some feedback as well from online people that were like, I love even though it wasn't necessarily Phil's era of right. ministry, we're still holding ourselves to where we want to be and we're setting a standard and we're holding to that. So right. people are appreciating that, Phil. Well, and I think we all hear, like usually you hear this in politics, it's like one presidential term versus the other, mm -hmm. that we kind of joke, right? That at some mm -hmm. point it has to be this president's like responsibility. And I'm not saying this president specifically, I'm saying every president is like, it was the last guy's fault, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and at some point it's like, ah, oh, it's kind of on you now. And I think actually good leaders just recognize uh, the blame game doesn't matter. I've heard the line before, I think it might've been a Craig Rochelle line. Uh, blame is, a, is an effective leadership avoidance strategy mm. <laughs> that we, wow, we yeah. don't have the lead if we blame. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, of course. And, and I think one of the things that was helpful, well, I did not know this uh, about this particular situation and these survivors, uh, when I said yes uh, to come to Menlo, it wouldn't have changed my mind. And I knew that there were things that needed um, yeah, some, some special care when I got here. And there would be things that I would need to apologize for that weren't my fault, but mm -hmm. were my responsibility. And that's what good leaders understand. And I want to be a good leader. And so uh, this is another opportunity for us to do that together. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And part of this leadership is going forward as well. And you mentioned something along the lines of potential conversations that might be happening. Uh, is there anything that you're kind of working on and working towards or what's going on with that? Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, the 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 ongoing conversations in some ways are going to be informed by people who kind of raise their hand and say, hey, I have something to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I had some of those conversations even this morning uh, or I'm sorry, yesterday morning with with folks around that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, my hope is that more of that can happen, that we just become a community where. Uh, folks can go, you know what, I can talk about this and I'm not going to get shamed or blamed for mm -hmm. it. It's not going to be hidden. It's not going to be put in a closet. We're just going to be honest about mm -hmm. it. Uh, and so I, I hope that's part of those conversations. I think some of it is those kind of employment conversations around how do we uh, figure out within our employment contract scenario ways to um, prevent abusers from joining our staff. And if they do and we terminate them, uh, that we can protect other ministries from uh, them going and serving there. Uh, and then uh, I, I think the, the zero abuse relationship will hopefully equip us to have good conversations moving forward as well. They do a great job. Um, you know, if you are a survivor and you reach out to zero abuse, they will talk with you. And if your feedback is, hey, I really want, Men <clears throat> I really want Menlo to know all the details of this particular um, you know, allegation or situation, my story, then we'll know all the details. If you say, 
I don't want them to know the details. I want them to know the themes and I don't want them to know who I am. They'll do that. Um, and then they are also a mandated reporter, self-designated uh, mandated reporter. So if you, uh, if you let them know of abuse that would necessitate reporting to authorities, they will. Uh, and they will do that without having talked to us. They will do that because it's the right thing to do, uh, as will we, by the way. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that it's sort of those three streams, folks that come to us directly, folks that go to zero abuse, and then this ongoing conversation that my hunch we will probably get started just after Easter with some uh, HR professionals. Great. Thank you, Phil. Of course. Yeah, thank you for thank leading you. this. It's, yeah. Again, it's a mark of a good leader that wants to accept what leadership means in their context. Yeah. Well, and I think a, a huge shout out to the Next Gen team mm-hmm. and to Scott Palmbush and LT before I even got here. Yeah. They really were working on these things. And so if you go look at that statement, you look at the bottom, there's a whole bunch of stuff and you're like, whoa, I mean, that is thousands and thousands of hours of work from a lot of men and women mm-hmm. who have rolled up their sleeves to make Menlo uh, a better place and a safer place for kids and students. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm glad to step in and help give some horsepower to that but the leadership was already moving so thank you to them yeah thanks yeah. brett you're so nice <laughs> <laughs> also Not shout Taylor, out to, to joan gerber who yes. was on our next gen team who hours and hours of going through dropbox files mm. to find every single name of every single student and leader who ever went on a trip as far back as we can find i mean wow that sounds awful but she did it because it mm-hmm. was important yeah mm-hmm. wow and she obviously did a lot of other stuff, but that's a big one. Yes. And so if you were like me this weekend and you heard this and thought, how is Phil going to talk about <laughs> anything else after starting his message like this? You did I somehow. Thought, I thought the same thing. <laughs> you I got thought. on your knees and you prayed. And you're like, all right, Jesus, we need you. <laughs> we need you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's the segue, Mark? The segue, how are we going to talk about bringing up Phil's message? And it... Look at that. It just came oh. up. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Oh. So, yep. Phil, nice. you also taught after giving us this <laughs> yeah, family yeah. announcement. Speaking of difficult and painful realities, let's talk about the cross. Yay. Yeah. Oh, I, was, I thought you were going to say my message, but yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Ouch. Cool. Ouch. Ouch. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry. So, we're on the cross. Last mm-hmm. words. Forsaken. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And I think uh, there's lots of stuff in the uh, final moments of Jesus' life that uh, I would say, yeah, like I kind of, that checks out. There's some pretty gangster level stuff that Jesus does. Like one of the most gangster things that Jesus does in his entire ministry, in my my opinion, is when Pilate's like, dude, speak up for yourself. Do you not know that I could kill you as a paraphrase? And um, and Jesus says, oh, I'm so sorry you've misunderstood. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and lay my life down. And then when I'm ready, I'll just pick it back up. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then he did it. And so uh, I think there's like cool stuff like that that you kind of get like, Peter chops off an ear at the arrest and then Jesus mm-hmm. is like, let me just put that ear back. You know, there's like cool <laughs> stuff. Like you're like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. That sounds so cool. And then the garden of Gethsemane where uh, Jesus is the, like the picture in Greek is that he's on his knees praying and that he can't, uh, he, like he falls onto his face from his knees and he's, he's weeping so deeply and asking the father basically for another option so much that he's sweating drops of blood. Uh, I don't. I don't have a lot of theological categories for that experience. Mm. Um, I mean, I can explain it, but it's not emotionally satisfying to me or to others. And then I think this weekend is probably the other one of those where, uh, in a trinitarian relationship with one God, 
in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, living in perfect unity throughout all of eternity. God the Son says to God the Father, who he does not call Father for the only time in his ministry, uh, why have you forsaken me? That is a... If we think that we have felt alone, <laughs> if we go, God, where are you? Imagine if that was your level of Trinitarian eternal relationship and partnership, and then, well, God looked at you and saw the sins of the world on you. You felt a level of darkness unparalleled. Uh, I promise you, Jesus can relate to whatever you're going through today. And that's the point of the author of Hebrews. And I think it's really encouraging, but it's also deeply sobering as we consider the last hours of Jesus' life. Yeah. I've never thought about it quite like that before, especially that was my first time hearing that this, that was the only time in Jesus's ministry that he yeah. didn't say, God, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And I love that you kind of brought out that theological question actually in your message of God, when Jesus is saying, oh my God, my God, you've forsaken me. Why have you forsaken me? There have been schools of thought that is like, well, that then proves that, that, that Jesus is not Jesus, that right. he is not. the Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, obviously, um, at any time that we uh, take one passage and we try to extrapolate from that passage an entire theological reality, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, that's always dangerous. Uh, it's often referred to as eisegesis, so when we lead into the text rather than exegesis, which is leading out of the text. Mm-hmm. And we, we really want to have uh, good hermeneutics in the way that we study the scriptures. And the way we do that is we say, what are the what are the, the bigger truths that we know to be true that are really clearly and intentionally revealed? Uh, and then we work from the things we know to the less clear passages. So we might read a passage like this and go, this feels confusing. Well, we don't, we don't from a confusing text, go, well, let's define the humanity and divine relationship of Jesus as expressed in the kenosis cons- component of Jesus in <laughs> Philippians or the impeccability or impeccability debate of Jesus' capacity for sin in temptation in his life. You wouldn't do that. Now, most of you are like, I tuned out anyway. So good, that's great. Um, but I think what we would say is we would go, hey, Philippians 1 says that we should have this mind that's ours among, uh, uh, it was ours in Christ Jesus who existed even though he was God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of flesh, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And it continues with this idea of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascendancy and his reigning and ruling for eternity. So like in the context of, hey, where do we see the idea of who Jesus really is and what he's really done. We see that all over the scriptures. And then we go to this passage in a narrative component where Jesus is living out an experience. And I think, uh, I, I think that I tried to talk about two components of that phrase. One is that he's, he's really quoting Psalm 22, uh, which Jesus had uh, arguably the entire Old Testament memorized. Uh, and Psalm 22 is uh, David calling out for help, but also in this kind of messianic parallel, Messiah being the rescuer, these promises of Jesus coming eventually uh, of his final hours. And then when he adds the intensive, my God, my God, and he adds the word why, uh, we even use it this way, the way that he's using it sometimes, right? Like, why is this happening? Why, why? You know, it's, it's not so much asking for an answer. Jesus knew the answer. And even if you think, I don't know if Jesus is God, he's not stupid. 
Like he, he said this was going to happen a whole bunch of times. And his disciples were like, what kind of metaphor is he using? And he's like, this actually is not a metaphor. This mm -hmm. one, I'm being totally real with you. I'm going to have to die. And then three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. Like he told them. So it, we know he's not confused. He's expressing the gravity and the weight of the pain. And I tried to talk about that even when we know the pain is coming, experiencing it is something different. And we've all felt that. And I think Jesus, he can relate to us in uh, a way more profound and deeper than most of us ever give him credit for. Mm. That was a lot in there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. That's okay. No, it was here's, good. Here's the thing. So uh, this weekend, uh, normally I teach 30 minutes. Well, till 80 days ago, I taught 40 minutes. Now I teach 30 minutes. And then uh, you don't care, but I write, like I manuscript my sermons. And uh, basically when we do something like uh, m make an announcement or spend a moment at the top of a message like we did this weekend, I don't get more time for that usually, especially this weekend. And so that's a page of my manuscript, which is totally fine that they were worthy of all of my manuscript. I'm not making a value statement. I'm simply saying that it means that there was work that I had done and prepped that it was just like, well, delete. Mm -hmm. And then and then restructure. So I probably have more in the barrel than normal. Yes. <laughs> and you used a couple words in there I want to get clarity on um, for our listeners. I probably you know, made not them up. Yeah, not, not for no, me. Not for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark's yeah. Adam. Uh, hermeneutics mm -hmm. and kenosis. Yeah, hermeneutics is the, uh, the, the study of how we study, essentially. Think yep. about it that way. So the way we understand and study the scriptures. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great book called The Hermeneutical Spiral. If you are nerdy and you want to learn more about it, that's a, a really helpful text. There's also a really good book by Gordon Fee called uh, How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth or How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, one of those two titles. Uh, and those are excellent, excellent books. If you want to understand more about hermeneutics, it really opens up a lot of how you think about and read the Bible. And when people go, well, what about um, the dietary practices in the Old Testament? What about our relationship to the Ten Commandments? What, like, why do we pick and choose some things to obey and not, that's all hermeneutics. Uh, so it's really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then kenosis is uh, the principle, sometimes it's, it's from that text in Philippians, the emptying of Jesus. We have to be very careful about the language that we use here. Jesus existed as 100% divine and 100% human simultaneously. And there's plenty of theological debate around his relationship to his divinity uh, while he's on earth. Um, but we know that he did not, he, it wasn't like Jesus pretended to go through difficult times. Today, we, uh, by and large, we will try to make Jesus um, less God. And so the way that like we debate, like maybe there's a guy named Jesus 2000 years mm. ago, but like he wasn't God, you know, that's the way that people approach it today. The way in the first uh, century, the earliest uh, heresies that existed around Jesus, because they had experienced him, because they had like watched him do all this stuff that was sort of inexplicable. And then, you know, hundreds of people saw him after he'd been publicly executed. Their uh, perspective was actually that he wasn't fully man. Mm. And so kenosis, kenosis is this principle, this theological concept that says he actually was both. And if you're like, that makes my head hurt, welcome to church history. <laughs> yeah. um, because we, that's been hurting people's heads for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. Simple there's math. A, yeah, there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that you just have to say, our human brains just can't understand it. Right. And you just gotta let it go. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, a, I, really I, hard for some people. I, just, I can do it. I but. think it's in Peter. <clears throat> um, I just love this passage. It says that uh, angels look at us 
And they basically, it's like they long to understand God's love for us. Mm. Mm. And I think about that like in the context, I, like I don't, it'll make me emotional. I, I think about that in the context of the angels looking at Jesus hanging on the cross. And they're created beings, so they haven't been around for all of eternity, but they've been around a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they remember Jesus in heaven <laughs> like it was yesterday. And they're like, wait, you're going to that pile of dirt that you made? Why are mm-hmm. you doing that? Oh, so that those rebellious people that continue to do it wrong mm. can have relationship with you? Why though? Like we have relationship with you. What? I don't understand. They're going to keep messing up. He's like, yeah, I know. Let's go. Mm. And, uh, you know, they, they just, <laughs> I kind of wonder how often Gabriel just kind of looks over at Jesus like, really? Like for Phil? <laughs> Mark? We're, we're doing? Jess actually, I get. Yeah, oh, yeah Jess okay, is pretty okay. great. But Definitely like, Brett. Yeah, Brett for sure. <laughs> uh, but I just, I just love that picture that mm. I think to your point, um, there's lots of theological questions that I think we are not equi- fully equipped to fully answer. And if you can answer every theological question, you are either um, not coming up with enough questions uh, or you have m- a much higher degree of confidence in your <laughs> intellect than I do. Um, but I think that the the deepest, most profound theological question, and I can give a non-satisfying answer to it, but the deepest theological question that I have is, uh, why does God love us? Mm. Mm-hmm. Like when, when I look at humanity, when I look at my own heart, right? Desperately wicked, who can know it? Um, and the answer is out of God's character. He doesn't love us because of us. He loves us because of him, mm-hmm. um, which is amazing. And I'm profoundly thankful for it. Uh, but you look at moments like this and you're like, Jesus, I don't deserve this. Mm. And he's like, yeah, that's kind of the point, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what grace is all about. So uh, I love that you get to see a, a glimpse of that. and where we were last week with, or t- a couple weeks ago rather, with um, uh, the thieves on the cross, kind of same deal, just the compassion in Jesus' eyes to people that just objectively did not deserve his love, and yet he was willing to give it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I-, I love at the end as well how you kind of ended with the veil and talking about that relationship and God bridging that gap between him inside of a closed room where he could have access, one person could have access one time a year, right, into the new reality of, what Jesus did, right? And so, well, and for for us as like evangelical Christians, or maybe you don't use that word because it's super loaded. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine. If you're a Jesus follower, um, I just think that it's we take this for granted, like we just do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you may not know this about me, but my mom is a first generation American Russian Jew. Uh, her family immigrated to the United States in the early '40s, uh, and um, she she grew up like understanding faith through the lens of Judaism and. I grew up because of that. She became a Christian in her 20s, and she really was and continues to be a, a super important spiritual mentor in my life. She's the reason. I mean, God used her most centrally for me to become a Christian in an abusive home. But uh, the way that she would talk about this as a kid, she was like, you know, the idea that I can just like pray to God, she's like, I've never gotten used to that. Mm-hmm. Because it just it just wasn't an option yeah. the same way, right? There was there was always like what was the step you had to take, and that was even a couple thousand years later after the sacrificial system had been destroyed. So you roll the clock back and you go, well, there's all these sacrifices that are being made at an individual level, and then the Day of Atonement that was a day for the accidental sins. <laughs> I mean, think about that. We just kind of go. I don't know about you guys. I'm just kind of like accidental sins. 
sucks to suck. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, we're all just going to keep living. And for them, they literally built a high holy day. I mean, yeah. God did around that. That's how seriously they took sin, first of all. And that's how seriously they took the presence of God. And then if you don't know this, uh, the way that the high priest would take part in that particular day is that after making this very important, very specific and well-regulated sacrifice for the people of Israel, they had already, by the way, had to deal with their own sin. Like mm -hmm. they had to deal with their stuff. Then they had to go deal with this stuff. And in case they didn't deal with it correctly, like in case they didn't follow all the steps, they would tie rope around the ankle of the high priest so that if when they went in, the presence of God killed them, oh because of unaddressed sin in their life. They could be dragged out because yeah. nobody else would go in, like they would die too. And so you're Dang. like, that, that's the veil that got torn. <laughs> you know, like imagine the people in the temple that that was their expectation. Wow. That was their understanding of, of the Holy of Holies their entire life. And then they just happen to be praying. They're just showing up when the veil gets torn and they're like averting their eyes. Yeah. And Jesus mm -hmm. just made it open for everybody. Wow. Is there any writing or anything about perspectives of people that either observe that veil torn mm. and their response to that because if if that was my context and i brought that into hey there's this guy that claims jesus he just died and now the the veil of holding in extreme character however you want to depict god was behind that and now that is torn it, was that fearful for them or was that yeah, exciting that's great, for that's, them? That's a great question. I don't know of any um, prominent first century. You know, the, the hard part is um, for us to have durable, uh, durable accounts of first century events, mm -hmm. they have to be copied a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could we find something? Sure. Yeah, I'm sure you could. Uh, but validating that thing would be really hard. Uh, there's a great book called Manners and Customs. Uh, that I bet probably if there's a reference, it, it gives you a lot of great breadcrumbs. So you could go to like Manners and Customs of the Bible and then go to Vale, and then it would give you some of its citations. Mm. And those citations would probably give you some of the best scholarly mm. work that exists around that. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm unfamiliar. You know, like when we think about what we have of the Bible, part of the reason that it's so miraculous is because it was so well circulated. And so we have, you know, when you consider the, um, uh, it's, it's a discipline called textual uh, criticism, when we, even through kind of secular outside the church lenses, just look at the uh, manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, there is nothing that even comes close in human history, mm -hmm. uh, uh, certainly of its antiquity, but just in general. Um, for how much evidence we have. And so that's, that's where it gets tricky um, in a society where a lot of things weren't written down. The ones that were, were often pretty limited. Mm -hmm. I've been asking a lot of questions. Sorry, Jess, I'm kind of monopolizing. What do no, you, what do I, you want to know about this? <laughs> I love this last like, week's message. I thought it was super interesting. Yeah, so no, I'll I give did you some too. Space. You're good. I was trying to form a question with some of the notes that I wrote down because you talked a lot about like... <clears throat> not like feelings it's per se, but like the hard times I wrote things like, um, it doesn't remove the pain. He can use the pain mm. we're going through. He was expressing the weight of the pain. Mm -hmm. I think that phrase that I wrote, he can use the pain we're going through is triggering sometimes to people because that's the response that they get from someone, whoever that, you know, when you're going through a really hard time, it's like, well, just pray harder because God will use this pain. So I, 
yeah, I don't know what the question here is, but maybe just like how, you know, how do you use that? Or how can we take this, this you know, mm -hmm. from your sermon and from this text and use that for a better way to talk to people about pain? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, first of all, pain is inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we have to acknowledge that. Uh, we are given different types of pain, but our pain is not invalidated because someone else has a bigger one mm -hmm. or a different one. You know, I always want to make sure that that's really clear. Sometimes when I talk about my childhood, people go, I had a tough childhood, but I didn't get hit. You yeah. know, like, cool. But I'm guessing, you know, my counselor would say lots of us, uh, well, we might not have like a capital T trauma situation. We've got a lot of lowercase t mm -hmm. trauma. And, you know, I, I want our identity as people to be as followers of Jesus, my identity is not in what I experienced as a child. My identity is in who I am as Jesus. However, um, parts of my life can be defining without defining me. Mm. And I think helping people mm. that have experienced pain to understand this does not have to define you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think Menlo's great about this. If uh, you talk to somebody, maybe this is you or somebody in your life and they're experiencing pain and you're just a friend of theirs, your job is not to be their counselor. Your job is to be their friend and to help them find a counselor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think sometimes we get into these um, uh, borderline codependent relationships where we feel like we have to be the solution for people in our lives. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of really good tools out there, right? Lot, lots of really good things from within the pages of scripture, as well as just from within the broader world, right? That every good and perfect gift comes from above, James says. And so, I think about something like, for me, a big part of my experience was EMDR therapy, uh, where it was this work to go back to memories you can't recall, especially from trauma, and then uh, to be able to get guided back into those memories uh, and to navigate them. In my case, it was with a, a really strong Christian counselor to say, hey, how does Jesus show up in this part mm -hmm. of your past? You know, and, and how can you mm -hmm. think towards the future? And so it's, not, it's, not, it's never minimizing, not at all, um, but I think it is like, hey, how do I how can I be this person's friend? Um, and how do I make sure that they get the help that they can really find a meaningful direction towards healing? And um, there's a line uh, that uh, I've heard for a long time, it's not my line, that what we don't let God transform, we will transmit. And uh, mm. I think that mm. that is true a lot in our suffering and pain, that uh, most of the time we can tell, can't we? Like we can tell when people have done the work, we can tell when people have gone and gotten care, because they can experience really hard stuff in their life and they're not just immediately projecting it. Mm -hmm. They're going, oh no, I, I know this is true of me. And they name it maybe. They go, oh, hey, can I just tell you this? This is gonna hit me different because, and I just wanna be honest about that in this relationship or conversation. But um, I just think that we, we have become, two things I think are really, uh, really important to note that could be an entire hour for us. One, I think we have, um, we have turned suffering uh, into all suffering, um, which all suffering is a part of it. Like when I suffer because I have a health diagnosis, that's suffering for sure. Mm -hmm. But most of the New Testament has at view the suffering we experience for following Jesus, which none of us really experience. Mm. Maybe you do, maybe you do. But I think for the most part, what it means to follow Jesus, even in the Bay Area, the, the most uh, ostracized we feel is uh, social rejection. Mm. You know. I'm unaware of anyone in Menlo Church that's in prison today for following Jesus or for telling other people about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we will 
we will conflate those two things. Uh, I think the other thing about suffering is that, that um, in our life, when we experience suffering that isn't related to following Jesus, do we understand that it can still be a vehicle that draws us to Jesus? It's not something to just be forgotten about, not something to, that's just like, hey, how do I uh, you know, consume alcohol for this? How do I take a drug for this? How do I, you know, and it, it, I'm not, I'm not um, saying that medication isn't a part of solutions. It often is. Uh, I, I just think that we need to understand that for us, you used to hear saints talk about uh, what an honor it was to be considered worthy to suffer for the gospel. And mm-hmm. I just think we don't, we don't process it that way. I was thinking about Romans 5 um, when you were talking, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we all have also obtained access by faith. It's this picture we were talking about this weekend into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the in hope of the glory of god and then um i mean paul who knows this personally he says not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope that does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us and if i teach that text sometimes i'll say um hope that helps hurts to get and uh we want hope that's cheap mm. and temporary uh, we want hope like fast food, mm-hmm. you know, and the the hope that Paul is talking about in Romans 5 is the hope on the other side of of years of battling infertility, hope on the other side of a health diagnosis you don't know what to do with, hope on the other side of SVB uh, collapsing and you're not sure what it means for your business, hope on the other side of uh, trying to care for your student and not knowing what to do next, hope on the other side of your doubts around faith. That hope, even though it's messy, is a way better hope. And I think when we avoid suffering, we also avoid that kind of hope down the road. There's a great deal of vulnerability in expressing suffering and expressing pain. And there was actually a question that got texted into us by one of our amazing listeners. And so if there's a lot of stuff in here. So if you could just pull something out of that, um, I think it, it has to do a lot with what you're just expressing. So this is the text. It takes a great amount of vulnerability to be honest with one another in our pain. We risk revealing weakness and we risk rejection. Is the risk always the reward? Is there a reward in our vulnerability? Mm. What a good question. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, There is a risk in our vulnerability. Uh, I think there's a bigger risk in not being vulnerable. And and I say Mm. that as somebody that, like I'm an Enneagram 8, um what does uh, that mean uh enneagram eight is the challenger so like if something's broken let's fix it because obviously who wouldn't want to do that (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm not like looking for conflict but if it exists i'd love to for us to just engage it so that we can get past it so Mm. hopefully i'm a healthy version of an eight um but i'm an enneagram eight and so uh, vulnerability is sometimes harder for eights to to find in their life because um it's like i'm i'm often uh fearful of being betrayed that somebody that feels like they're loyal is ends up not being loyal and you, you live life long enough the reason that you're scared of that is because it's happened and it has uh but i think that um you know through especially the work after my dad died and uh over the last few years of leading through a pandemic and um I think leadership vulnerability became kind of the only oxygen to lead with where it felt like you could still breathe uh, because this invulnerability, somebody was talking to me yesterday 
and they were talking about how, hey, I, like I'm pretty good at my job, and I think I've realized that like I can kind of do it without God sometimes if I'm not mm. careful, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that's what this illusion of invulnerability does. Um, mm. It, it, it makes us feel like we can. And you're like, oh, you just mean for pastors. I'm, I don't, I mean, I mean all of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever you do, God's called you to it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're just as much a pastor at your job or in your house or in your neighborhood or at your school as I am at Menlo. You are ex- like, we, we are the priesthood of all believers. It's core to what it means to be a Christian. Um, but I think that uh, how we show vulnerability is so true, so important because it's who we truly are. So even if you're successful, like I, I grieve CEOs and wildly successful parents and students that are crushing it at school, uh, if they're faking it, they're actually not succeeding. Their mask is. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, don't you wake up and go like, I wonder what would happen if, I, if it was me. I wonder mm-hmm. what would have happened if like I had done something, you know, and they'll never know because they didn't do it. And so uh, I, there, was a, there was a speaker one time who said it this way. He said, uh, the, reason that we, uh, the reason that we lead with vulnerability is because even Superman has kryptonite. Hmm. Show people, he said, hmm. people will admire your cape, but they will learn from your kryptonite. Hmm. And uh, I, I think that is hard. It is really hard. And especially because we put pastors on pedestals, it is very, very easy. Uh, there's kind of two worlds when uh, you preach that's, that are easy to get into. You can get into a hero complex where every story you tell, you come out successful. Mm. Um, and then there's the martyr uh, complex where every story you tell, I'm so stupid and I can't do it. And um, so managing that tension is, is a part of, I think, leading with honest and healthy vulnerability. Because there's a version of vulnerability that is just not healthy or, or smart. But uh, how, we, how we thread that needle, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, any other pardon or leaving thoughts before we end our time here? I mean, I think I've talked too much in this. So how about you guys tell me, mm-hmm. what do you feel like the Lord is showing you kind of this season of Lent as you prepare for Easter sermon series or not, just in life? Mm-hmm. What do you feel like is coming to the surface for you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Think on it a little bit. I th- for me, it's definitely, I've been thinking about that verse in Matthew, um, vine and branches. Mm. Apart from me, you can't, you can't mm-hmm. do anything. You can do nothing. Right. And so kind of what you just shared are people that are higher capacity or can potentially do things under their own power. Sure, they might be able to do that. Talk about myself here. But is that the best way to do it? Right. And how am I being handicapped because of that? And so trying to focus this, this Lenten season on just what it means to rely on God in everything not just the things that I need, quote unquote, his help with, but in the day-to-day, in the things that, yes, like I could probably do that just fine. But what does it mean and how will it be different if I invite God into that process? And what from there, what stems from there? Because without that, I couldn't have had a new outcome. So that's been on my mind a lot. And it comes, for me, it, it stems from being attentive and not trying to be on my device and just mm. looking at stupid things that I'm probably just going to forget about tomorrow. <laughs> but actually, okay, God, like, how, how can I give my, my, my attention to you instead of to other things and trying to stay in that moment? Kind of like um, Laubach, I think it was, Frank Laubach, 
He, he did this experiment where he tried to think about God every minute of every day. Wow. Wild. Well, he was a missionary in the Philippines. Fantastic. Yeah. So Matt Stefan, campus pastor at our San Mateo campus, gave me that book. It's called Letters from a Modern Mystic. I think I've talked about it a few times here. But if you, this is interesting to you, it is a fantastic read and it really changes perspectives on inviting God into your life and what it means to follow him. What about for you, Jess? Great. Yeah, mine I think is similar to that. Um, what came to my mind is um, I was having a conversation with my boss, Josh Fox, at the staff retreat, and what he said was that he's working on is how do I become more Christ-like through this difficult season? And I think that really stuck out to me because I think I'm similar to you, Mark, where that's my first go-to is like, how do I like bring God into the pain? How do I draw close to him? How do mm. I feel his presence and ask him to help me through it? But then taking that step further and how do I ask him to help me be formed to be more like him? Just really like stuck with me. And I, I don't think I'm doing anything at the moment to like get to that. Um, but that is a line that has been like every once in a while it comes back in my mind and it helps i mean i guess i yeah i don't know but it just it's been something that i've been thinking about and i'm like i don't think i've ever really thought that hard about that in my life mm. and i think part of that is just my personality of like usually i would ignore all the hard stuff and as an enneagram 7 we tend to want all the good and positive and happy things. And the last couple of years and through therapy and everything, I've learned how to live in those pain moments. And so I think instead of just, which there's nothing wrong, obviously, with asking God to be near you in these times, but then how can I then be formed to be more like you in all of this? Um, yeah, that's kind of something I've been thinking about a lot lately. That's great. Yeah, as you're, you guys are talking about that, I was, I was, it's funny that you said the word form, right? Because I think in my head, there's this dysfunctional vision of God where he wants to fix me. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like my, my role is often fix, 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 fix. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not true, by the way. Um, it's, not, it's not my task. I can't fix people. I, I can't even fix systems. That's God uh, that's doing, doing work to bring healing and health. But I also think um, two things. One, I think... God is way more interested in forming us than fixing us, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I also think uh, this understanding of God's love that um, if we never did anything for him, he would still love us mm -hmm. is so countercultural, <laughs> you know? And uh, at that staff retreat, uh, which we were kind of rolling out some of the, the work that's ahead for us around central staffing and uh, this reorg that is necessary and uh, but difficult and painful and um, I'm kind of rolling it out and it's heavy and trying to be present with people. My roommate was Troy from our Menlo Park campus. Mm. And uh, he came up to me at the end and he kind of just put his arm around me and he said, hey man, and we both watch uh, a particular show on ESPN called Pardon the Interruption. And he's like, hey dude, if after this you just want to sit and like watch Pardon the Interruption, like not talk about any of this. He's like, I'm here for you, man, whatever mm. you need. And there was part of me that was like, I think sometimes Jesus is like, Phil, if you just want to sit yeah. and watch part of the interruption with me, like that's enough. Mm -hmm. mm. And so Troy, if you're listening, you're Jesus to me at that mm. retreat, man. You were great. He's, he's an amazing dude. So uh, I think oftentimes we're, we're looking for, okay, Jesus, what do, what do I have to do for you to want to yeah. be with me? Yeah. 
He's like, you remember the cross? Like, you don't have to do anything. There's nothing you have to do. I did it all. I just want to be with you. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times the answer is, do we believe him? So. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, if you, well, Phil, thank you. Of course. Thank this you, awesome. guys. Um, if you need to process anything or you have any other questions, please text our team, 650-600-0402. We'd love to be that resource for you. And I'd just like to take this time, too. And can I express a disappointment? Yeah, you guys? of course. I made a deal with all of our listeners out there that I would oh, run, yeah, run a mile. For yeah, for everybody that for signed every up. Every person Uh-oh. that signed up. Uh-oh. On the online team. On the online team. There's only 11 people signed up. Whoa. I know. I think it's 12 now because I did. 12 people now. So. <laughs> Still. I'm trying to get to 50 miles. All right. Ooh. We got some work to do. They have some work to yeah. do. Come on, yeah. people. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do this. That's good. Here's the thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there is, I, when I signed up, I noticed there are a ton of groups you can join. Mm-hmm. If you are listening, you can say no to this, Mark. If you're listening and you're like a normal like online viewer or listener, but you signed up for a different team because of their friends or the life group, whatever, can they text you and say, hey, I signed up, but I can't be on the online team. Yes. Can my sign up still count for your miles? Sure. Okay, there we go. Yeah, you can text my we'll number. Or happens. if you want to switch teams, or I, won't, switch I won't tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Just text us let us know. Phil, thanks so much for being here. Of course. Sign up for Run for Hope. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Bye.